feels like when the church first started. Anybody, how many of you were here when the first church? So early on in the early days of the church, no one would ever sit up front. Like the, the whole, everybody would just start about eight rows back and it would just be me speaking to eight empty rows. We bribed people. We, there was one Sunday where Tyler put donuts on each of the pews up front and they just sat there and no one ate them. We tried everything to get everybody to sit up front. I, uh, apparently, this year, fathers don't want to come to church is what's happening. <laughs> uh, we love you dads who are watching at home. Come to church next year. Uh, which, which does bring me to, uh, to Father's Day. Uh, I grew up in a church that on Mother's Day celebrated moms and told them how amazing they were, and on Father's Day yelled at dads and told them to do better. Anybody else grew up in that church? Was it just me? No, there's a few of you, yeah. Uh, it was kind of like Father's Day is the like man up day. Like you guys stink. You guys got to get it together. We're all falling apart kind of day. And Mother's Day was like, everybody's amazing. Uh, so, so dad's in the room. If you're a dad, will you raise your hand? Hey, here's what I want to say. What you do is the most important thing that you will ever do. What you do matters. What you do is unseen. What you do is hard, what you do is difficult, what you do is something that nobody knows the sacrifices that you make for your kids or for your family. And I just wanna say, as your pastor, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for loving your family well. Thank you for loving your kids well. And we do see it, and we do recognize it, and we do know it, and we're proud of all of you. So let's give it up for all the dads that are here. We are working through a series on the book of James, uh, talking about genuine faith and authentic faith. And, and, and I've loved walking through the story of James because it really does zero us in around the idea of how, how does our faith become genuine, right? Let's not just talk about faith. Let's not just know about faith. We want to have an authentic faith, a real faith, uh, a, a genuine faith. And so uh, we've been talking about the tongue. Uh, we were talking about how do we control the tongue in the beginning of James chapter three. And today we wanna talk about wisdom. And, and I think wisdom is a, is a perfect topic for Father's Day. Uh, you guys just saw my dad on the screen. I don't, I don't know too many people that are more wise than my dad. I don't know too many people that I call and ask for advice or help. I heard that from most of the grown people that were talking about their parents. Is that I need somebody to call. I need somebody to talk to. I need somebody. Like, like you never stop being my dad, and I never stop needing your wisdom. And so, <coughs> excuse me, I was excited today to land on this topic of wisdom today, but I want to go a little philosophical if you're all right with it. Because uh, the Bible has, has lots of different themes, and one of those themes is the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. It's the difference between the flesh and the spiritual and, and in that, uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There is a wisdom, there is a way of thinking, there is a way of the world, the Bible calls it worldly wisdom, that actually seems wise, but in the end it actually takes us down a path that is troubling and so I want to start by getting a little philosophical about two kind of worldviews in our culture right now that I believe seem right to man, but in the end lead to death. The first is that my life 
is fundamentally about me. That my chief aim, my chief goal, my chief objective is my own happiness and my own joy. That my happiness matters most and that I am utmost in my own affections. I think this is a way of the world. I think this is worldly wisdom. I think this is what we're taught in culture. I, I think this is what we see over and over and over again, and I absolutely believe it's a false way of living. The second is that there's no absolute objective standard that exists in which I must live. That all people have the right to their own preferences, their own opinions, and that whatever makes us happy is the thing that we should pursue. It's the thing that we should go after. It's the thing that we should run towards. It's the thing that we should give all of our heart and affection towards. And so my life is about me, and there is no absolute objective standard that exists in which I must live or we must live as a society. Here's the problem with that. There are 8 billion people in the world who are all pursuing their own happiness and who are all saying there's no objective standard by which we live. Now, think about a marriage, right? This is not eight billion people trying to get along. This is two. How many of you have been married, are married? Yeah. It's hard. Just two of you. Not eight billion. Two, right? And, and here's why it's hard. It's hard because even in that most basic relationship, Right? I, I, I performed a wedding just a couple weeks ago or, or a week ago. And in, in that wedding, you, 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 you share your vows, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. You make these promises. And all of the promises that you make at the day that you're married, when you stand in front of the church like this, is I'm going to give up my own self-interest to pursue, pursue your self-interests. I'm going to die to myself so that you can live. I'm going to give up of myself so that I can love you and serve you and care for you, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether you're being conditionally loving to me or unconditionally loving to me. No matter what's happening, I'm making the promise that I'm going to stay with you and that I'm going to serve you, that I'm going to care for you, that I'm going to lay down my own self-interest for you and for our family. And we're having a really hard time with that promise to one person let alone eight billion of us. Does that make sense? It's incredibly difficult for us to give up our own self-interest. It's incredibly difficult for us to say, maybe my life isn't just about me. Maybe it's about God. Maybe there's a higher power. And maybe there is an objective standard which I must live because there is someone who knows better than I do. Maybe there is others living in the world and existing in the world. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said this. He said, all virtues are lost in self-interest. They're like rivers floating into the sea. We lose ourselves in the pursuit of self-interest. Walter Brueggemann wrote a brilliant book called The Journey to the Common Good. Brueggemann is my favorite Old Testament scholar. Absolutely brilliant writer, uh, does a great job taking the Old Testament and, and, and helping us to understand culture through it. And, and, in the old, and, and in this book, Journey to the Common Good, he tells the story of Pharaoh. And he uses Pharaoh as the example of self-interest, right? Pharaoh could not do what was best for the common good because he knew that the moment I do what's right for the common good, our economy collapses, 
I, I, I lose my empire. I lose my strength. I lose my power. I lose all of these things. If I lay this thing down, then everything falls apart and everything begins to collapse. And, and he goes on to say, when we prioritize our self-interest above the common good, everything begins to fall apart. But this is the way of the world. In fact, it's so much the way of the world that we believe that we are persecuted and we believe that we are victimized when we're not allowed to pursue whatever we want and when we don't believe that there is an objective truth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is persecution in the world and there is brokenness in the world and there is victimization in the world that needs to be addressed and that needs to be addressed be talked about. But when someone tells you you're doing something wrong, that is not necessarily victimization. When someone says, maybe you should be thinking about others, you're not being victimized, you're being challenged, right? And we live in a culture where there is a growing trend that whenever we challenge somebody, they're suddenly victimized. And we're all fighting to be the most victimized, right? So everybody is, is fighting to be the one who is victimized the most. Bergman says, with collaboration, empathy, shared prosperity, when that becomes the norm, then society can begin to flourish. And the only way we truly get breakthrough is to give up our own self-interest and understand that there is an absolute truth. That there is a truth that matters. There is a truth that, that stands. We've become like Adam and Eve in the garden saying, I think God's holding out on me. Right? I, I think he's holding out. Like, there's another way that I could be a little more happy if I could just do what I want. There's another way where I could get exactly what I want if I could just... We've all become like that. And so in order for 8 billion people to get along, maybe we've got to shift our perspective uh, think about your own life. Think about areas of your own life where you're tempted to pursue your own self-interest versus the common good. In your work. Man, it's so easy at work to just kind of like, hey, I'm going to just try and get that corner office and I'm going to go for it. And I know that in order for me to get the corner office, I've got to smash this other person. And I've got to say things about them, and I've got to get competitive with, with them, and I've got to do this. It's, it's really easy for those of us who run our own companies to say, you know what, I'm going to not pay everybody else fairly so that I can get the largest share. All of these things are pursuing our own self-interest. Think about your marriage. Every single day in our marriage, we're in this space where we're tempted to pursue what we want rather than what she wants, or rather than what our spouse wants. And the whole purpose of marriage, I think the whole purpose of being a father, of being a mother, is to teach us to give up of ourselves. Paul said, for I am always being given over to death so that others might live. The work of following Jesus is self-sacrifice. It's death to self. And it's, it's saying to others, I'm going to prioritize you. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to learn. I, I, I think our marriage and our parenting is the greatest discipleship process we'll ever go through. Are you with me? Every single day, we're practicing being like Jesus. Every single day, we're tempted to want ourself first, right? 
Think about your money. Think about your time. Think about your friendships. Think about all of these areas of your life. And my guess is if you do a deep dive into every one of those areas of your life, you will recognize there is some self-interest here that is not holy. There is some ambition that is selfish and not good. There are ways in which I pursue these things that is not wise. And so James gets really philosophical here in James chapter 3, and he asks us this question. What makes us wise? What is it that makes us wise? Like, how do you know the difference between a wise person and a fool? The Bible talks a lot about the difference, right? It talks about the, the, the building the foundation, right? The, the wise man builds it on the rock. The, the, the fool builds it on the sand, right? There's all of these illustrations about wise and foolish builders, wise and foolish men. And James begins to ask the question, okay, so what makes us wise? How do we know whether we're wise? How do we know we're growing in wisdom? How do we have an authentic, genuine, real wisdom in our life? And in James 3, verse 13, he starts with this. Who is wise and understanding among you? And then here's his answer. By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. When do you know something is true? when it's shown and when it's proven. And so James says, how do we know when something is wise? How do we know when someone is wise? Well, you see it in their conduct. The Bible says you see it in their fruit, right? You see it in the life that they live. We think that wisdom is cognitive, right? This is how we actually train our school. We could go into a whole conversation about schooling and our educational system and all of these things. We've taught kids to take standardized tests, but have we actually taught them to be wise? We've taught them to give the right answers, but have we actually taught them to be wise? A Harvard professor in the early 90s did a a, a kind of test on their ethics class. They gave them a test, and it was a test about ethics. There was 30 questions, and 90% of of the students passed the test. Then she gave an ethics problem to the class where there was actually a real-world decision that the class had to make. One of them led them to winning and getting their own self-interest. One of them led them to sacrificial life and led them to something else 20% past the other side. There is a way in which we can live where we have the right answers but the wrong posture. And here's what James is saying Wisdom is shown through our conduct. Wisdom can't be separated from it. It, it, It's not just that we have this cognitive understanding of things. It's not that I need to watch another podcast, read another book, study another topic. It's that I need to actually live out what I know. I believe this is 100% true. I've been a pastor all of my life. I believe this is 100% true. We are way educated beyond our obedience. I think we could spend an entire year in the first chapter of James, and you don't need a different sermon on a different verse every week. We need to actually say, are we following this one? Could we just spend a whole year talking about wisdom? 
Could we just, for the next, our church would diminish. There would be, there would be less people up front than there are now. But, 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 but we just, we're teaching over and over again. We've got more access to information than ever in our history. You can look up any verse and you can find article after article after article about it if you want to. You can find podcasts of it. You can find everything that you want at your feet so that you can cognitively understand it. But the question is not just do we cognitively understand it. The question is do we live it? Are we living into it? Are we becoming the people who are wise? Wisdom bears fruit and that fruit is behavior. And so oftentimes we think the wise person in the room is the one who knows the answer. What I would suggest to you oftentimes the wise person in the room is the one who shows character. And interestingly enough, most wise people I know don't flaunt their wisdom. It's a quiet wisdom. You know what I'm talking about? They don't have to have the right answer. They don't have to speak first. They don't have to argue with you. They don't have to win. They don't have to go into a deep discussion about everything. They just live it and they walk in it and they walk in the right ways. When we discover new things, that may not make us wise. When we learn to walk in those things, That makes us wise. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm going to say it again, all right? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We want to be awakened cognitively, but not awakened behaviorally. And what James is saying is, if you're wise, this is what you see. This is what begins to happen. Wisdom bears children, and those children are faithfulness. Those children are fruits of the Spirit. The more wise we become in the way of Jesus, the more loving we become. The more wise we become, the more gentle we become. The more wise we become, the more joy that exists in our life. The more wise we become, the more peace that lives out and flows out of us. All of these things begin to happen. And here's the question I want to ask you. Are you really learning if you aren't changing? Have you learned anything if you're not being transformed? I think we believe that we can come to church week after week and we can learn something, we can grow in something, we can absorb something, we can cognitively understand something, but then I can go out the rest of the week and not live into that in any way and we think that we understand it. Our understanding is lived out in our behavior. Uh, I, I remember when I was a young pastor and I was trying to understand things. Uh, one of these things was just the prophetic. I, I didn't grow up in, a, I, I grew up in a culture, I've said this before, but I grew up in a culture where the Holy Spirit was like the weird uncle, right? I don't know if anybody else grew up in that church. Like there was, there, the, the Trinity was Jesus, God, and the Bible, right? And then the Holy Spirit was like, we talked about it maybe once a year because there was a verse, because we love the Bible. And so because the Bible talked about the Holy Spirit, we had to talk about the Holy Spirit, but we didn't really know how to talk about the Holy Spirit. And so it was just weird, right? And I started getting around these prophetic people, these Holy Spirit people, and I was just so...
so attracted to this. And I started kind of learning new things in the, and they started opening up my eyes to what the Bible actually taught about the Holy Spirit. And there's all these beautiful things that were going on. And my tendency in that moment was like, oh, I got to buy every book I can on the Holy Spirit. And so I did, right? I'm, I'm, a lead, I'm, a, I'm a learner, I'm a reader, and so I just started grabbing, I bought everything, man. I got, I got some John Wimber, I, got, I just started pulling in everybody imaginable. I got some weirdos in there, I won't mention who those are, but I, like, I, I just started reading everything I could about the Holy Spirit because I wanted to understand it. And, and one of my mentors sat down with me and he was like, okay, so, so how are you practicing the, the Spirit? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm reading about this, I'm reading about this, I'm reading about this, I'm reading about this. And he's like, no, I said, practicing. I was like, I, I don't, I don't know. And he said, go pray for that person. I was like, I don't know that person. Yeah, God will give you a word for him. Well, what if God doesn't give me a word for him? It's <laughs> like, it's okay. You'll learn. Go. And my mentor just started sending me. We would go to lunch and he would be like, all right, you're going to pray for the waitress. You're going to pray for her, and God's going to give you a picture or a word or a verse for you to share with her. And I was like, what if he doesn't? And he's like, then it will be weird. Uh, (laughs) But this is what we're going to do. And sometimes it was weird. And sometimes God gave me something. Right? I think, and here's what I want you to understand about all this. I think sometimes we think we just need to learn more. And I think what we need to do is practice more. I think about an area of your life where you feel like, I'm struggling spiritually. But when, when we feel like we're struggling spiritually, we, we, we kind of have three go-tos. The first is, is we try and just learn about that thing. Right? So I'm just going to read, I'm going to learn, I'm going to study, I'm going to hope for, a, I'm going to ask for some advice. Uh, the second is that we just try harder. Right? I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to gird up my loins. I'm going to get tough. I'm going to get after this thing. And the third is that we actually start to practice it. We actually start to say, all right, Lord, I don't know that I know how to do this as much as I thought I did. And I'm realizing that I still have to grow in this area of my life. I'm realizing that I'm not there yet. Every time I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but as I get older, every time I feel like I start to get victory over certain areas of my life, I realize there's more victory that needs to be had in those spaces. Are you with me? Like I feel like, oh man, I am so much more mature than I used to be. Like, we talked about taming the tongue last week. Like, my, my, uh, my tongue is so much better than it used to be. I promise you. Some of you, that's hard for you to believe because you really know me. But in my 20s, man, I was a disaster. Like, I just would, I was feisty. I would say everything. I would, I, I just was all the time. I've gotten so much progress with my tongue and with taming my tongue and with not saying things. I say this in sermons all the time. 90% of the time, maturity for me looks like not saying anything. And I still have a million miles to go because I'm a mess with my tongue. I say things to my kids and to my wife that I should never say to anybody. I still say things out loud that are in my self-interest and not in the interest of other people. I still say things that aren't wise. I still get feisty about the wrong things, right? Some of you in this room, you're like me. You're kind of feisty, and, and, and that's good. I think God puts that in us because he wants us to fight for holy things, right? There is a thing like holy ambition and holy fighting and, and, and learning to fight for justice for the right things. But the problem with that feistiness is it can get misdirected into the wrong things, All of a sudden, you're getting feisty around self-interest, and you're getting feisty around your preferences, and you're getting feisty around 
I've never said feisty this much in my entire life. You're, you're getting fired up about all the wrong things. There is a false wisdom, and the Bible calls it worldly wisdom. It's following the crowd. It's not being intentional about who we are. It's not trying to practice what we're learning. It's not submitting and surrendering our whole self to Jesus. I think maturity oftentimes looks like I don't know what I'm doing. And there's a surrender and a submission to that. I'm not there yet. I haven't got it all figured out. There's a humble way in which we carry wisdom that makes sense to me. He goes on, and and James talks about how wisdom isn't found in a location, it's in the foundation. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast, don't be false to the truth. This isn't wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He starts off by just naming some characteristics that aren't wisdom. Right? If you got your Bibles and you're one of the underliners, maybe it's good to circle these or square them or, or underline them. It says, you, you're, it says bitterness. It says jealousy. It says selfish ambition. It says boastful, false, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. All of these things are listed out as things that we live into that are not wisdom. Wisdom isn't in the location, it's in the foundation. So where do we get our wisdom? Jesus said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You want to know the sad thing about Lord, the word Lord? We don't even like to talk about this in our culture. You know what the word Lord means? Master. Master is a tainted word in our culture. And we don't like it. We don't want to use it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. In Scripture, it says, no, Jesus, God, is actually our master. He's the one we look to. He's the one we follow. He's the one we obey. He's the one that we learn to put our trust in. There's this term of authority that goes with it. Scripture says, if you confess that Jesus is our Lord, then you honor him with your obedience. You walk with him in your obedience. So where are the areas of your life where you're rooted in yourself, where you're rooted in your own self-interest and where you're saying to to the Lord, I I don't want a master. I don't want anybody leading me. I don't want anybody guiding me. I don't want anybody directing me. I don't want anybody walking with me or or, or sharing what's true. Uh, I I read a book uh, by James Clear. It's called Atomic Habits. Anybody read this book? It's a really terrific book. It's not a Christian book, but it's a really terrific book about habits and about how we follow habits. And, and I got on this big kick about my habits of like, all right, I'm going to start paying attention to my habits. And he's got all these kind of inspirational quotes that is like, if you just build your systems better and get 1% better every day, and I'm like, I'm going to get 1% better every day. And, and one of the things that, that, I, that I struggle with, and those of you who know me know, is I drink way too much soda. Uh, I, like I... Uh, my, the staff makes fun of me consistently. My children mock me. Um, I, 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 I drink way too many Coke Zeros. I'm not even going to tell you how many I drink a day because I try and keep that a secret because there's some shame involved in that. Uh, 
I've gotten to a fairly unhealthy place where I'm dependent on that caffeine. Uh, and uh, there's aspartame in there, and that's forbidden in other countries, and it's probably tearing up my insides. And I know that some of you are judging me right now, uh, and I apologize. It's a real struggle for me. So I read James Clear's book, and, and in it, James Clear says this. He says, like, sometimes what you need to do is you need to take the thing that's tempting for you and move it farther away from you. So I was like, okay, I can do that. So I took all the soda and I put it in the garage fridge. Because I have to like walk further to get to it. And our garage isn't really pleasant. I, some of you dads, you have like, uh, like, you have a Rick Gaines garage where like everything is alphabetized and everything is clean and everything is beautiful. My garage is just, there's stuff in there, right? It's just, there's things and there, occasionally we can get a car in there, right? It's just, they're there. And, and so my, like I just started, I thought, well, maybe if I put everything in the garage, so I, the garage is hot, it's warm, I don't always want to walk through the garage, maybe this will help. You, you know where I've gotten to now over the last year of having the fridge in the garage? I've gotten to the point where every time I walk in the garage, I have to drink a Coke. <laughs> I will get in my car in the morning and I'll be like, oh yeah, Coke. I will like go to cut the grass, I'll be cutting the grass, drinking a Coke. <laughs> like whenever I'm doing yard work, there's a Coke close to me because I've gotten in this habit of, of chasing the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and, and stepping into this. Uh, we, we don't trick ourselves into obedience, guys. And I know that soda is a silly thing and some of you may think I'm actually sinning. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm actually sinning by drinking Coke Zero. I'm also not sure it's healthy for some of the parts of me. Like I, but I, we don't trick ourselves into obedience. We surrender ourselves into it. And so for me, in my own life, in my own practices, I actually need a Lord. I, I've tried to do things my own way. I've tried to figure it out on my own. I, I've tried to discern what's good, right, and perfect in my own life, and I've not been able to do it well. Every time I start to try and do things on my own way and in my own walk and trying to figure it out on my own, it just all seems to fall apart. And so James says, wisdom is found in the foundation. And the foundation of wisdom is surrender. It's simply me saying to Jesus, I surrender to you. I trust you. I believe you. I'm going to follow what you say. Now, there's real challenges in figuring out what did Jesus say? And there's real debates involved in what did Jesus say and what did Jesus mean? And that's a worthy pursuit for us to follow and to go after. But we do need to say, I'm willing to surrender. The last thing is that wisdom produces righteousness. Verse 17, it says, but wisdom from above is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, it's full of good fruits, impartial and sincere, just like all of our social media feeds. There's a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Circle those words again. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. And set those side by side with the other side, which says bitter and jealous and selfish and boastful and false and earthly and unspiritual and demonic. And James is saying, one of these sides is full of wisdom, the other is not. 
And which way are we going to walk? N.T. Wright says this. He said, the challenge for God's people that James lays out to us is to be able to tell the truth about the way the world is and about the way wicked people are behaving without turning it into a perpetual grumble. And in particular, without becoming someone whose appearance of wisdom consists in being able to find cutting words to say about everyone and everything. Have you seen this in the church? Right? This is what happens. So we, we start to lean into wisdom we start to lean into behavior, and then all of a sudden, everything becomes about behavior modification, and everything becomes about works, and all of a sudden, we're just sitting around judging everybody, and critiquing everybody, and yelling about everybody, that we know the answers that they don't, that we know the truth that they don't, that we're saying it in the right way, and they're saying it in the wrong way, and we live in this way of walking in wisdom that is arrogant, and boastful, and proud, and pushes other people down, and N.T. Wright says, no, 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 no. Wisdom shows a different posture. Wisdom doesn't have to yell, guys. Wisdom doesn't have to be loud. Wisdom doesn't have to be boastful. Jesus wasn't those things. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was kind. Jesus was full of mercy. John tells us that Jesus was full of both what? Grace and what? Truth. And he was able to do those two things together. Right? That he was able to combine both grace and both truth. And so wisdom does not mean we stand at the world and yell at them that they're wrong. Wisdom means we invite them to a better way. The best critique of bad is always the practice of something better. And if you want to critique the world, if you want to critique the culture, if you want to critique the ways in which the world talks about these two principles, if we want to walk in a different way, then the best way we can do it is to have such a winsome, loving, caring, gentle, open, uh, inviting posture to people. They're like, I want to be a part of that. One of my favorite things that people, when people come to our church is when they say, I don't know, I just started meeting some people and they look like Jesus to me. And I want to be around those people. That's what I'd like to be known for as a church. Be known by our love, be known by our care. Wisdom produces righteousness. Wisdom doesn't just produce rightness, it produces righteousness. It produces a, a, a posture and a way. Uh, when I was playing basketball as a kid, I, I was so competitive. I, I was, I'm, I, competitiveness is one of my greatest challenges, always. And I was so competitive, and I wanted to win every game, and every game we lost, I threw some sort of tantrum. And that was bad enough. Like, my parents had to watch me like, oh boy, he's about to get a technical foul because they're losing. He's about to foul somebody really hard because they're losing. He's about to yell at a ref or a coach or a player. Something's going to happen because Ben has no wisdom and he's walking in a way that is a mess and he's a sore loser. But then something even worse started to happen. I not only became a sore loser, I started to become a bad winner. I started to get cocky. I got pretty good and I got to a point where I would just, I'd talk trash the whole game. And it's one thing to talk trash to like the kid that thinks he's really good and you're trying to put him in his place. I think Jesus wants you to do a little bit of that. It's another thing to do it to like the kid that's terrible. You know what I'm talking about? I was misbehaving on all of these different ways. And I remember, I remember my coach sat me down and was like, hey, knock it off. Like it's one thing to be a poor loser. It's another thing to be a bad winner. And you're both of those things. 
I think the church has been bad winners. I think we bang our chest in the culture wars. I think we post nonsensical things on social media that turn people away. I think many times we're winning the argument and culture right now, but we're losing the people. Church attendance is rapidly declining. I read an article this week that said, churches are having a hard time finding pastors because there are no pastors under the age of 30 anymore. The question was, am I the last generation of pastors? We have to stand in wisdom. We have to actually speak truth about what worldly wisdom is. But we have to know that our righteousness does not mean the same thing as rightness. Our righteousness is proved by the way in which we argue, by the way in which we discuss, by the way in which we have dialogue, by the way in which we talk to one another. Your, right, your rightness never allows you to walk in wrongness. And Jesus is always inviting us into a different place. So I, I don't know, guys. This, it's Father's Day. We've got a half full audience here. I'm doing my best talking about wisdom. I'm certain I dropped the ball 15 times as, I, as we just talked about this, and I probably got things wrong in here. Uh, but here's what I want us to understand. God invites us all to worldly wisdom, or to, to godly wisdom. He invites us to run from worldly wisdom, he invites us into godly wisdom. He invites us into humility. And he invites us into a space where right at the very beginning of James, James says this, James 1 verse 15, if any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? You ask him, and he gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so I think every single one of us, if we're really going to evaluate, if we're really going to look at our lives, we will know there are areas of my life right now where I lack wisdom. There's areas where I don't know what to do. There's areas where I don't know how to respond to that. There's areas where I don't know the right answers. There's areas where I don't know what to say. And all we can do in those moments is humbly go to the Father and say, all right, Lord, I lack wisdom, but I trust that you're the source of it. So teach me not to act in my own self-interest, not to put my chief end of my life, my own happiness, but teach me to walk in the ways that you have called me to and teach me to be faithful. That's not easy, but it is the way of Jesus. And it's not the most pretty thing to invite people into. I had a pastor once who said, you know what the worst invitation to a crowd is, is come and die. But that's kind of what Jesus invites us to, isn't it? Come and die to yourself. Come and die to your own self-interest. Come and die to your own ambition. Come and die to all of these things that are pursuing what you want best and live for the common good and live for me and let's start something beautiful. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you teach us wisdom. Lord, we don't, we don't even know. We don't know what's right all the time. It's a difficult time in culture. We don't know how to talk about difficult issues. We don't know how to walk in difficult spaces, but we want to be faithful to you, which means we want to speak the truth in love. We want to walk in grace and in truth. But we also want to do it with wisdom and with righteousness and with holiness. So I pray that you would transform our minds, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us. But I also pray that you would transform our hearts. I pray that you would make us softer, 
that you would make us gentler, that you would make us kinder. I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. And I pray that in the middle of pursuing all of those things, you would bond us together as one. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. There's communion stations kind of set up all around the room. The worship team's going to lead us in a song as we wrap up. And as we do, as you grab the the juice and the bread, I, I just want you to just ask Jesus one question today. Where in my life do I need wisdom? And start seeking it. Start surrendering it to him. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a situation that you're dealing with. Maybe it's a, a, a sin that you're struggling with. Whatever that thing is, what does it look like for you to just to humbly go to the table of the Lord and say, today, Lord, I just want your wisdom. I, I, I was struck this morning as I was getting ready. I, can I just be really honest with you? It's Father's Day, and I've worked 27 Father's Days in a row. And today I was kind of like, Lord, it'd be nice to have a Father's Day off. I may not preach next year at Father's Day. What's up now? Right? Uh, the Lord may let me do that. Uh, but as I was praying, we did our prayer time this morning, and the Lord was like, that might be kind of about what you're talking about here, self-interest, maybe a little bit, Ben. And I was like, I hate you, Lord. But you're right. But I think something really good happens when the church just gathers. Like, I don't care how many people are in the room. I don't care if it's like the best Sunday ever or the greatest worship that we've ever heard or the greatest sermon that we've ever preached. I just want us to be a church that every single week just says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to be like you. Jesus, I want to pursue you. I want you to change my heart so it looks like yours. I want us to be a church that genuinely seeks transformation and wisdom. And that doesn't require anything other than humility. And so my invitation for you this morning is just, could you humbly ask him to give you wisdom? Could you humbly say, hey, Jesus, I need you in this area of my life. And then let's worship and praise him as we exit together today. Communion stations are open. We're going to worship together and pray together. Feel free to move about the room.